let me share with you uh, one of the cartoons from one of my favorite cartoonists. This is a guy named Gary Larson. He's the author of The Far Side. This is his imagination of what hell is like. Three more, two more, one more. Okay, five million leg lifts. Right leg first. Ready, set. No matter who you are, no matter what your imagination is, most of us will think of hell probably the same way. It's a place filled with flames and fury and suffering and Satan. It's a place of, of torment. And each picture tells a story that oftentimes sounds like this. God is a stern judge. And at the end of this life, he's going to decide on who gets an eternal vacation and who he locks in his basement in a torture chamber and throws away the key. And like a cartoon that accentuates one aspect of something, these images of hell leave us with a bit of a distorted view of both hell and therefore God. Now, don't get me wrong. All these aspects of hell are, are in the Bible. They're biblical, but they're just out of perspective. In, in fact, these kind of views and this narrative leave us with a view of God that he's some kind of cold-hearted, sadistic torturer. And so we ask the question, how can a loving God possibly send people to hell? But if we take a step back and we actually situate our understanding of hell within the grand storyline of the Bible we get a better understanding, a more accurate understanding of hell, and for that matter, of God himself. So what I want to do this morning is this. I want to take a moment to unpack the storyline of the Bible. Around here we call it, uh, kind of a, refer to it as a, a four-act play, or in kids' world, we call it the big God story. I want to unpack that storyline, and then I want to look at three parables that Jesus used to teach us about hell. And we're turning to Jesus' words because he taught more on hell than anyone else in all of Scripture. And so as we begin, let's begin with the Bible storyline. Here's what it is, the four-act play. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he invited humanity to, humanity to join him in establishing his kingdom, a kingdom where justice and mercy rule and where God dwells with us. However, sin has separated humanity from God and undermined his kingdom with injustice and suffering and death. But God, in his great love, conquered sin and death through the perfect life, death, resurrection and ascension of his son, King Jesus. And he invites us to join with him once again in establishing his kingdom. In the end, Jesus will return to establish his righteous kingdom on earth. And those who refuse to be part of his kingdom will be shut out in a place the Bible calls hell. Now, let me unpack a few distinctions within this four-act play. The first is this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Did you notice what's missing? Hell. Hell was not part of God's initial creation. It wasn't his design from the beginning. Hell was something that was added later on in the narrative. A second distinction is this, that God's kingdom is not some ethereal, futuristic, metaphorical place. Rather, God's kingdom is something that is very physical. It's very present. It's very powerful. It's a reality that God's been establishing since the very beginning with Adam and Eve, through his people, Israel, on through the church, and one day his kingdom will be tangibly established in this world through the return and reign of King Jesus. And that kingdom is marked by justice and mercy. It's the way that we know who has truly surrendered to the king, who's identified with him. It's the way that we know who are insiders and who are outsiders. And in the end, King Jesus will return and decisively separate insiders from outsiders, the righteous from the rebel. 
Therefore, God's most, or I'm sorry, hell's most distinguishing feature is not the presence of flames, but rather the absence of God's favor. You see, in hell, there's the absence of light and life and goodness. There's the absence of God's mercy and grace and love and truth. In hell, what is demonstrated is God's justice and wrath. So what I want to do with this narrative as the backdrop, I want to turn to three parables that Jesus gives us. The first is found in Matthew 25, and it's his most familiar parable on hell. Um, It's his clearest teaching on hell. So I want to invite you to turn to Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Here's what Jesus has to say. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a, sheep separates, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of these, the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did also for me. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Did you hear the Bible's storyline in this parable? A kingdom prepared before the creation of the world, the return of the Son of Man, the King, justice and mercy as the markers of the kingdom, and in particular with regards to God's people, ambassadors of his kingdom. Did you hear the tangible nature of the kingdom? Food and clothing and real people comforting real needs? Did you hear the judgment of the nations, dividing insiders and outsiders, the sheep from the goats, and the consequences? The blessed invitation of come, take your inheritance to the insiders, versus the curse of alienation, depart from me. And there's a lot to unpack In this parable, there's a lot of things that we could discuss, but the primary thing I want to get from this parable is the portrait of hell. I want to unpack three really important details. We're going to begin with the fire. Now, before your imagination runs wild and you paint a picture probably similar to what you drew with fire and fury, I want to say that Jesus uses a lot of imagery in his parables to teach. And not everything, not all imagery can be interpreted literally. Now, let me issue a bit of a disclaimer. Just because the flames of hell are not literal doesn't mean that hell is any less horrible or frightening or painful. 
In fact, I believe that the reason why Jesus uses fire as the imagery for hell is because it's the closest thing that gets us to the feeling of what it might be like to be eternally separated from God. To the pain of knowing what we've rejected and what we're embracing. Fire is the closest thing that gets us to understanding the suffering that comes with being separated from God. It's not the only reason why Jesus uses the imagery of fire. You see, fire is God's most common image when it comes to judgment. And in particular, judgment at the end of the age. When God's judgment comes like fire, it's permanent. It can't be reversed. If God's judgment were to come like a hammer and smash his enemies, one could reasonably understand that we could piece back the, the, or glue back the pieces and, and reconstitute what's been smashed. If God were to come with a sword and rend something, we could reasonably understand how it could be mended back together. But when judgment comes like a fire, it's permanent. You can't undo what fire has undone. And God's judgment is permanent. The second detail I want us to understand is this, that hell was never intended for humanity. Did you hear what Jesus had to say about it? The flames prepared for the devil and his angels. So not only was hell not a part of the original creation, but it wasn't even intended for humans. People created in God's image. And it's an appropriate contrast to what Jesus has to say to the sheep. He says, come you who are blessed by my father and take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Friends, you and I, we were created for the presence of God. The kingdom of God was made for us. Hell was never God's intent for you and for me. Humanity was destined for the kingdom, and hell is for those who refuse to enter that kingdom. Last detail is this, that hell is eternal. At the end there, he sends those who reject the kingdom into eternal punishment. And to the eternal flames. And it's a rightful counterpart to the eternal life that we see in that last verse. The goats go off into eternal punishment, whereas the sheep go off into eternal life. If we can conceive of an eternity of endless joy, of the presence of God and all the goodness that comes with it, we have to understand, we have to be able to conceive of a place where that doesn't exist. A place of, of eternal torment and separation from God. There's no two ways about it. This is the way that this parable goes. Sheep and goats, a kingdom and hell, eternal life, eternal death. See, Jesus leaves no room for alternative interpretations. And a lot of people have tried, but Jesus leaves just no room for it. And if you're anything like me, I wish there was. I wish there was another way. Because the whole idea of hell and its judgment gets too close to my heart. Because I recognize at times that the evil that God judges in the world is alive in me. That my heart is wicked. And I don't want to imagine that there's a place that I'm worthy of. C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain says this. There's no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture and especially of our Lord's own words. It's always been held by Christendom, and it has the full support of reason. 
Some of you are thinking, reason? How is hell reasonable? I mean, I, I hear it in Jesus' words, and I know that we've held it in Christianity since the very beginning, but, but really, how is hell reasonable? How is it reasonable to believe that a good and loving God could possibly allow people to suffer eternity in a place like hell? How is that reasonable? Now, let's turn to our second parable and look at the punishment of hell. Now, this second parable is just a, a few pages back in the book of Matthew, Matthew 22, verse 7, or at the beginning. Beginning verse verse 1. And here Jesus tells a parable about a wealthy king who throws a party for his son, a wedding banquet. Now in those days it was not uncommon for a king or a dignitary, a wealthy nobleman to throw a party and invite the entire city. It was a sign of his wealth. It was a sign of his stature. And in fact in that, in that culture... If somebody was blessed with great riches, great wealth, they were expected to use that wealth to bless others, to build buildings and and care for those around them, to feed the poor, and to be generous. And so a a king would commonly throw a party like this. And to reject such an invitation uh, wouldn't be reasonable at all. In fact, at best, it would be looked at as ingratitude, right? Ungrateful for what this nobleman had done to the city. And at worst, it was uh, an act of hostility. Thumbing your nose at at that dignitary, at that benefactor. And so Jesus begins talking about this king who throws a party. But rather than read it, what I want to do is I want to update the parable a little bit, all right? So humor me. If Jesus was around today, this is the way the parable might have been told. Let's just imagine that Tom Ricketts, the owner of the Cubs, took notice of our church out here in the suburbs. He came and visited, and and he was so impressed by what we're doing and all the ministries that he decided to join our family and become a member. It was fantastic. He was so excited about what we were doing at each one of our campuses and the next campaign that he actually contributed and topped off the campaign. In fact, canceled all of our debt. And not only that, but he was so excited for what we're doing and and community impact and international impact that he wrote a a big, fat $10 million check and said, hey, keep doing what you're doing. This is awesome. I want to support everything we've got going on here. And we'd be so excited about that. We'd, we'd feel so grateful. And imagine that a, a few years later, as his son got to be the age to marry, he, he got engaged, and, and Tom was excited to throw a, a wedding and a wedding banquet for his son. And so he sent an invitation to Christ Community Church, and he said, I want you all to come to the wedding of my son. We're going to pack out Wrigley Field for the, the ceremony, and we're going to party all night long at Wrigley. I want you to be there for the reception. I've reserved the entire left field line for my family from Christ Community Church. Would you please come? Man, it'd be awesome. Can you imagine, though, if not a one of us RSVP'd? Not a one of us said, yeah, count me in. Tom scratches his head, and he, he thinks, this is strange. This is not quite like my, my church. Um, I need, to, I need to send a, a second invite. And so he gathers some of his guys together. He gets Joe Madden and Kyle Schwarber and, and Chris Bryant and Anthony Rizzo and, and the guys, and he sends the team over to the church to, to re-extend that invitation. Like, hey, hey, church, Tom really wants you there. Would you please come celebrate with us? But instead of accepting the invitation and, and being gracious to them, we kind of razz them, rough them up a little bit, beat them up, and, and even kill a couple of them. <laughs> Can you imagine how how irate Tom Ricketts would be? Cubs fans everywhere? I mean, he'd own our church in a heartbeat and probably raise the thing right to the ground, right? And he'd have a right to be this angry. 
But then he'd, he'd think about the, the wedding of his son, and he'd think, there is no way I can throw this extravagant wedding with everybody looking, all the eyes of the world, and have the entire left field line empty. This just will not do. And so he says to the, the rest of his organization, I need you to go into the streets of Chicago. I need you to pass out jerseys and invite everybody that you can find. Invite them to come and celebrate the wedding of my son. The stadium has got to be filled. And so he does exactly that. And the wedding day comes, and sure enough, the stadium is packed, standing room only. And the wedding goes off without a hitch, and everything is going smoothly. And at the reception, everyone's having a wonderful time. And, and Tom is walking around, greeting his guests, and he looks over and he notices there's somebody who looks a little strange. And they're wearing black and white. You guessed it. It's a Sox fan. And he walks over to that Sox fan and he puts his arm around him. He says, uh, friend, uh, can you please explain to me your attire? Did you not get the jersey? Did you, did, explain to me what's going on. And the guy looks at Tom and says, are you kidding me? I'm no Cubs fan. I'm just here for the food. Man, that guy would be out on Waveland Avenue faster than a Kyle Schwarber home run, right? Like, Tom would not put up with that kind of thing at all. This parable that Jesus tells is dripping with absurdity, isn't it? Like, who would turn down such an extravagant invitation from such a generous host, right? Like, who would beat up the messengers of such an extravagant invitation by such a generous host? Who would show up to a, a wedding in such an undignified way. Sorry, Sox fans. Who would put up with this kind of offense? Not Tom Ricketts. Not a king. Definitely not God. You see, Jesus is making a few really strong points in this parable. The first is this, that God is generous in his invitation. God is the benefactor of benefactors. He is the top of the Forbes 500 list, right? His pockets are bottomless, and he has wealth and resources to share, and his invitation goes out to everyone, both good and bad. Second is this, that God is justified in his anger and in his judgment. You see, because God is just, he must punish evil. Because God is good, he will punish evil. You know, it's interesting that God's judgment against evil, God's punishment of wickedness in our world, causes us to question the very goodness and love of God. How much more so should we question God if he didn't punish evil, if he didn't punish the wickedness in our world? If God just turned a blind eye to the evil in our world, shouldn't we then question God's goodness, his love, his very character? You know, according to the Bible, hell is not the problem. Hell is the answer. Hell is God's answer to the wickedness and evil in our world. It's his answer to the murderer and to the rapist and to the warlord and to the terrorist, to the sex trafficker. Hell is God's answer to everyone who's ever cried out, God, do you see me? Do you see what I'm suffering? God, do you notice what's going on? Listen to the words of David in his prayer of lament in Psalm 13. And David prays these words, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? 
How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemies triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. Isn't that the prayer of everyone who has ever been abused? Is that the prayer of everyone who's ever been cheated out of money that they need to feed their family? Everyone who's ever been the victim of racial discrimination and hatred and injustice. Everyone who's had the life of a loved one cut short by violence. How's God supposed to answer those prayers? Is he supposed to just turn away and shrug them off? That's not the kind of God I want to believe in. I want to believe in a God who hears our cry, who hears this prayer of David, who hears your prayers and mine and responds. God is good and God is just. And because of that, he will respond to evil in this world. He will judge. And we all nod our heads in agreement on that one, don't we? But then what do we do with this poor fellow who shows up at the wedding banquet without the proper attire? We turn to this guy and we kind of scratch our heads and we say, you know, this seems so petty. Is God really so shallow that that he cares about what we wear to church? Is God so shallow that these things matter? I mean, what's up with this guy? And if we look a little bit closer, we might find that God is not being petty at all. But God is being fair. Fair. See, think about it. The king's invitation is free. The gift, the invitation has gone out to everyone. And the only thing he expects in return is that we be properly dressed for his presence. In fact, he's gone so far as to remove every obstacle from our way and provide us with the wedding garments, right? There is nothing holding you back. If you want to come, please come, he says. And yet this guy shows up in such an undignified way. But we might still ask, well, why can't the king simply forgive? Why can't God just forgive the guy? My friends, that's exactly what the garment is. It's forgiveness. Listen to the Apostle Paul's words in Galatians chapter 3. He writes this, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. To be clothed with Christ means to be clothed with his righteousness. We're no longer outsiders, but insiders. We're no longer foreigners and aliens, but citizens of his kingdom. We're made children of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, and joint heirs with Jesus, heirs of God's kingdom. When we identify with Christ, when we allow his blood to wash away our sin, When we receive that garment of forgiveness, God doesn't see our evil. He doesn't see our wickedness, our unworthiness. Instead, he sees Christ's righteousness. And he calls us son. He calls us daughter. And we are welcomed at the family table. You see, there are some who desire the blessing of God without the righteousness of God. There are some who desire the kingdom but want nothing to do with the king. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce says it this way. There are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. 
all that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find, and those who knock, it is opened. To apply this to the poor fellow at the wedding banquet, you might say that those who bristle against the fabric of Christ's righteousness will also bristle at the fabric of his kingdom. Righteousness and justice, mercy, truth, will be no more pleasant or joyful to them in heaven than on earth if they had not already been clothed in Christ and conformed to the image of King Jesus in this lifetime. Heaven would be no more joyful for them there than Christ's righteousness is here. And our last parable that we're going to talk about this morning actually illustrates this point beautifully. I want to invite you to turn a few books forward in the New Testament to Luke chapter 16. And here we see Jesus' parable parable about Lazarus and a rich man. Luke 16, 19 through 31 says this. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury day after day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to him. No, Father Abraham, he said, but, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, they do not listen to Moses and the prophets. They will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. The picture of the rich man here in Luke 16 is a high-def image of the goat from Matthew 25. You see, the culture and the Hebrew law call this rich man to share, to notice the needs of those around him, to be generous with the blessings that God has given him, to care for the poor and the needy, the hungry and the hurting, the alien, the orphan, and the widow. And yet, day after day, this rich man is too consumed by his own business, his own life, his own needs and desires to even notice poor Lazarus, let alone care for him. Don't you think it's interesting how suddenly, once the rich man is suffering, now he knows Lazarus' name? that interesting? The day after day he passed him and, and does absolutely nothing. Yet here he knows his name. Abraham, send Lazarus. It wasn't that he didn't see Lazarus. It wasn't that he didn't notice him at his gate. It was that he turned a blind eye to that need. He chose 
to walk past that opportunity. Day after day, Jesus shows up in the form of Lazarus and calls the rich man, come, be part of the kingdom. Come, be part of my kingdom. And the rich man passes right by. Isn't it interesting that the rich man's first reaction isn't contrition or confession, but rather the selfish exploitation of Lazarus? You see, his natural instinct is to undo the mercy of God for Lazarus by turning him once again into a a slave. His demand, send Lazarus, stands in stark contrast to the king's invitation, right? Come you who are blessed by my father and take your inheritance. What's been set free by the king is once again being enslaved by sin. What's been blessed by God is once again being corrupted by humanity. And what heaven has won Hell's trying to steal back, but God won't allow it. To the rich man, Abraham says, no, I'm sorry. But in this last life, you had everything. You had every opportunity to respond. You had the law and the prophets. Jesus himself showed up, calling you into his kingdom, and yet you ignored it, every bit of it. In this last life, Lazarus had nothing. And no resources to turn to. And so in this life, this next life, I won't allow you to ignore him. I won't allow him to be exploited. A great chasm has been separated, been set up separating you from us, heaven from hell, so that God's children will never be taken advantage of again. See, hell is not just punishment for the wicked, but it's also protection for the righteous. It's God's way of ensuring that his eternal kingdom will not be corrupted like his earthly kingdom. Hell is God's mercy to his children. And there's no room for a rich man who has no room for the poor or the crippled or the broken or the least of these. See, even in the face of eternity, in agony, the rich man will not be clothed in righteousness. It's interesting that he, he says to Abraham, hey, go warn my brothers, maybe they'll repent, but he has no repentance himself. He's ignored the law and the prophets. He's ignored the presence of Christ. He's ignored the reality of his own judgment. And according to Abraham, there's nothing that God could do for a person who refuses this invitation, not even resurrection. To the rich man and all those who refuse to be clothed in Christ, God grants them their desire. To them, he says, thy will be done. Hell is God's act of mercy to those he loves. You know, as I studied the doctrine of hell, as I looked at these passages, the one attribute of God that stood out most to me wasn't his justice or his wrath, but rather his mercy. So I want to close this morning talking about the mercy of God. And I want to take a quick walk back through those parables. And I want to point out the extravagant mercy of God. You go Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats. We see God's mercy each time Jesus shows up in the form of the poor and the sick and the naked and the hungry and the thirsty, the hurting, and the least of these. We see his mercy in Matthew 22 through the generous invitation extended to the entire city, the entire kingdom. We see God's mercy through the patient response to their initial refusal, the second chance extended through his servants. We see God's mercy through the invitation to all, 
both good and bad, sinners and saints. We see God's mercy through the generous provision of wedding garments for anyone who would come. The price that he paid to provide that for you and for me. We see God's mercy through the kind address of the man who refuses those wedding garments. As he wraps his arm around him and says, friend, why? We see God's mercy in Luke 16 and the gentle invitation to the rich man day after day through the person of Lazarus. We see God's mercy in the way that he tenderly carries poor Lazarus to Abraham's side into the kingdom of God. We see it even in the kind address of the rich man by Abraham when he says, son, remember. We see it in the great reversal of Lazarus' painful life and in the eternal protection provided by the chasm between heaven and hell. Friends, let's not miss the great mercy of God. Let's not allow the frightening caricature of hell to distort our view of God and to question his goodness and love. In love, God paid the price to spare us from this penalty. In love, God sent his one and only son to be the payment for your sin and for mine, to suffer the death that you and I deserve. There on the cross, as Christ died, his blood was provided for us to wash us clean and to make us worthy of God's presence. And when we come to recognize what Jesus has done on our behalf and we surrender to him, acknowledging our sinfulness and his worthiness that God clothes us with his righteousness, with the righteousness of Christ. We're made worthy of his presence, worthy of his kingdom. We're made children of God, citizens of that kingdom, ambassadors of God's justice and mercy to the world. There's nothing that we have to do but receive it. To put on that garment of righteousness. To allow Christ's forgiveness to wash over us. Let me ask you the question. When it comes to God's great gift of salvation, what will your answer be? Will you say to God, thy will be done? Or will you insist on my will be done? What I want to do is this. If you've never asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, if you've never made him savior of your life, if you've never identified with his forgiveness and righteousness, I want to challenge you to do that this morning. It begins with a simple prayer that says, God, you are holy and I am not. I'm not worthy of your presence. I'm not worthy of your kingdom. But because of what Jesus did on the cross, I ask you to forgive me. Clothe me with your righteousness and make me worthy of your presence. And help me to be an ambassador of your kingdom all the days of my life. To follow you. To be an agent of justice and mercy. To be representative of your love to the world. I'm going to pray that prayer right now. And if you've never prayed that prayer and if today's your day of salvation, I want to invite you to pray that prayer quietly in your heart with me. And then we're going to pray and ask God's blessing on our morning. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? And if this is you, pray this prayer quietly in your hearts. Father God, you are good. You are just. You are merciful. We acknowledge that we are not. We are unworthy of your presence. 
We've been people who perpetuate evil and wickedness in our world and work against your kingdom. But Father, we acknowledge your great love for us, that Jesus died on the cross to wash away our sin and make us worthy of your presence once again. Father, I receive that gift. I pray that you would forgive my sin. Clothe me in your righteousness and make me worthy of your kingdom. Fill me with your spirit. Make me part of your family, an ambassador to your kingdom. And help me to live a life that is worthy of that kingdom. May I reflect, God, your justice and mercy and love to a world desperately in need. Father God, I pray for all those who prayed this prayer this morning. Father, I pray your hand of blessing on them. As they come into your family and enter your kingdom, Father, I pray that you would walk with them. I pray that you would wrap the family of God around them to care for them and love them and encourage them in their next steps. Father, I pray that you would make each one of us ambassadors of your kingdom. May we be marked by your justice and your mercy and your love and your goodness. May the world see you, King Jesus, through us. Father, we pray all these things in the awesome name of Jesus. Amen.